Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Hope you are having a marvelous summer so far. My guest today is none other than award-winning and New York Times best-selling author H.W. Brands. He holds the Jack S. Blanton Chair in History at the University of Texas at Austin, and he is a prolific author having written 30 books, including biographies of FDR, Theodore Roosevelt, Benjamin Franklin, Aaron Burr, and Andrew Jackson. His most recent book is called The Last Campaign, Sherman, Geronimo, and the War for America. His works have twice been selected as finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. I asked him on the show, however, to talk about a historical figure who may not have quite the gravitas of a Roosevelt, but certainly deserves a book of his own, The Colorful Jim Fisk. And the book, by the way, is called The Murder of Jim Fisk for the Love of Josie Mansfield. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's, it's so great to have you. My pleasure. So what is it about the story of Jim Fisk that intrigued you enough to decide to put it onto paper? Well, I'll share with you something that's maybe not commonly known even among readers of the book. I wrote the book to be about Josie Mansfield, not about Jim Fisk. And the reason I wanted to write about Josie Mansfield was, well, actually, there are a couple of reasons. One is that it's not that easy to write about women in American history. If you're going to use the typical standards for writing history, uh, novels are something entirely different. But because women, until the 20th century didn't hold political office because they didn't usually take leading positions in business. They weren't in public life much. Because of that, they didn't leave much of a trace of the the standard kind of materials that a historian, a biographer like me would use. And I thought, well, that's a shame because women are half the population and they do interesting stuff. So I want to tell something of their story. And I 
had written somewhat about first ladies, for example, the wives of presidents, but but they always are in the shadow of their husbands. Dolly Madison's a partial exception to this. Eleanor Roosevelt, she had a life and career of her own. But even so, the reason that they were important was they were connected to these presidents of the United States. But there were other women who were interesting in, in the case of Josie Mansfield, notorious. In fact, I also wanted to write about somebody who was kind of notorious. Now, I knew the story of Josie Mansfield, but obliquely, because I knew the story. I have a continuing interest in American business and economic history. And so I, so I knew about Jay Gould and his partner, Jim Fisk, and their takeover of the Erie Railroad, which is one of the big corporate battles of the 19th century and their attempt to corner the gold market of the United States, which was one of the the great, as in interesting, fascinating, and potentially important chapters in American financial and economic history. They almost did it. They didn't quite make it. And whenever I would read and write about Jay Gould and Jim Fisk, there is Josie Mansfield kind of hovering in the background. Now, she had to be in the background because she was, to put it in terms that the 19th century would have understood, she was a kept woman. She was Jim Fisk's girl on the side. He was married and his wife spent, he was from New England. They were both from New England. His wife had the good sense to stay in Boston when he went to New York. He really, he essentially went to New York during the Civil War to make his fortune speculating. And as the Civil War gave way to the Gilded Age in New York, in American economic history, he fit right in. And so he was a great speculator. Uh, but he also had an eye for pretty women. And Josie Mansfield caught his eye and he set her up. They had an affair. It was a notorious affair. People who knew Fisk knew about Josie, and occasionally they would be seen together in public, um, but they couldn't actually, I mean, they weren't supposed to be seen in public. Anyway, there was a great scandal around this. And, but, but Josie was initially my secondary interest. I was interested in Jay Gould and Jim Fisk. And then, and then not too long after this attempt to corner the gold market, Jim Fisk gets murdered. And okay, that most, most financiers, most business folks, they might retire, they might keep working until they're you know, quite elderly, but they don't very often get murdered on the steps of one of the biggest hotels in New York City. So now that was, that's a spectacular story. And I wanted to tell that story, but I wanted to tell the story through the eyes of Josie Mansfield. Now, early in the, the process of conceiving this and doing the research, I came up with the title that I liked, and the title is the title of the book that you just cite, The Murder of Jim Fisk for the Love of Josie Mansfield. And I, you know, the title sort of intrigued me because, after all, a murder for the love of somebody? This sounds good. <laughs> and, and so I wrote the book from the perspective of Josie Mansfield. And I wrote the book. My publisher was happy to publish it. And the first, the first inkling I had that they didn't see it quite the way I did came when I got the cover for the book. So when you write a book, 
They have people at the publisher who design the way the pages are going to look, and then they design a cover. And usually there's an image of something on the cover, a picture if it's about somebody, uh, a, maybe a photo or a, a portrait or something like that. And, and then, of course, the title and the author and all this. And so they sent me this cover. The, the designers at Random House uh, sent me this cover. And it was a, I thought it was a good-looking cover. And on the cover of the book was this, it was taken from a, an editorial cartoon showing Jim Fisk in all of his florid glory. And above it is the murder of Jim Fisk for the love of Josie Mansfield. And I, I wrote back to him and said, great cover, but you got the wrong person on the cover. There should be a photo of Josie Mansfield. And they said, oh, yes, oh, yes. And uh, I should add that they had shown me the back cover, which had Josie on the back. I said, well, just flip the two and we've got a great cover. So they went back and said, oh, okay, okay. And then about a month later, they came back to me and said, and this is, this is what always happens. They, they said, you know, we think we're going to go with the cover the way it is. Now, I didn't realize in this until I'd been in the, the authoring business for a while that the publisher, rather than the author, has final say on what the cover of the book is going to look like. They will consult me, but they always consult me. Hey, here's this cover. We like it a lot. We hope you do too. <laughs> and the subtext is, and if you don't, tough luck, because that's the way it turned out. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, so it did put, and you know, from a marketing standpoint, it made sense because a lot more people would have heard of Jim Fisk than would have heard of Josie Mansfield. So I, I can understand that part of it, but still. So I got interested in Jim Fisk initially because he was a partner of Jay Gould. And then I wrote a book about Jim Fisk and Josie Mansfield because I wanted to write a book about Josie Mansfield. Now, Fisk is an interesting character in himself, but he seems to me as though if I were casting a movie, and by the way, Hollywood has made this story at least two or three times, uh, Jim Fisk wouldn't be the main character. The main character might be Jay Gould. The main character might be Josie Mansfield. Jim, Jim Fisk is kind of a... He's sort of the fool that is, uh, you know, the court jester to the serious intelligence of Jay Gould in their financial dealings. He was, he was the front man who would get out there in public and bid up the price of gold and do all this. And then in the relationship with Josie Mansfield, well, he's the guy who winds up getting killed. So he's not going to be your protagonist exactly. But that's, that's how I got to write about Jim Fisk. Interesting. Yeah. But, but it was much more difficult to flesh out the character of Josie Mansfield, right? Just ah, because yes. And so, yes. So getting back to the problem that I decided earlier, where do you find records about people who aren't public figures? Now, in fact, none of Gould, Fisk, and Josie Mansfield were really public figures in the sense that they didn't give speeches in Congress. They didn't have political platforms that they were running on. In fact, they pretty much went out of their way, except maybe for Fisk a little bit, to stay out of the limelight because the stuff that they were doing in the first place was, it was borderline, it was on that borderline between legality and illegality. One of the interesting parts of the story that I tell in my book about this period is that, and this is actually often true, the really scandalous stuff is scandalous because it's not illegal. The stuff that they were doing would become illegal once 
people decided, wait, we can't let people do that. But it's very often the case in finance. We see this again and again with financial panics, whether it's the panic of 1893 or 1907 or 1929 or the panic of 2008, where the stuff that gets you in trouble is the stuff that the regulators haven't figured out yet needs regulating. And that was definitely the case in the 1860s. The, the financiers, the speculators, the capitalists were way ahead of the government folks, whether in Congress or the executive branch, who might try to rein them in. But anyway, so Gould and Fisk, they didn't really leave much of a, a public record, at least that they wanted in public. Now, a big part of the story, and we'll probably talk about this more, is that one of the precipitating factors for the murder of Jim Fisk is a bunch of letters that Fisk wrote to Josie Mansfield when they were still an item. These are love letters that Fisk wrote to Josie. And when Josie decided to break it off with Fisk, then he wanted the letters back and she didn't want to give the letters back. And Ned, Ed Stokes, the guy who pulled the trigger, the one who was eventually was convicted of manslaughter in the, well, I guess we'll call it the killing of Jim Fisk because he never was convicted of murder. But anyway, so Stokes has this great idea. Let's use the letters to blackmail Fisk. And so these letters become the object of dueling lawsuits. And one of the things that allows me to tell the story is, first of all, it, this case goes to court and court records are a public record. Not only are they public records, but especially when it's a celebrity and Fisk was a celebrity in New York during this time. And his story was great for the competing New York newspapers. New York City in those days had probably eight or 10 full-blown daily newspapers competing for the eyeballs, the attention of readers. And so they covered stuff that happened in New York, just sort of wall to wall. And they all had stenographers who would go to the trials and they would take down, they would transcribe the testimony. And so the court testimony gave me a lot to go on. Now, of course, the testimony is offered under oath. So you would like to think that these people aren't lying, but New York courts in those days were notoriously corrupt and people were not above lying. And they were lying in part because they knew some of the judges, for example, were on the take, were on the payroll of some of the participants in lawsuits. And so this story gets well reported. So we hear what people say. And eventually, eventually the love letters were published. At least, at least a bunch of them were published. Were they all published? We'll never quite know. And one of the reasons that the letters became a source of such contention is that nobody quite knew what else was in the love letters besides, dear Josie, I think the world of you kind of thing, please come back or something like that, because Jim Fisk was up to his neck in dealings with William Tweed, the notorious boss Tweed, who was the commander of the, all of the rogues who ran Tammany Hall. That was the name for the New York City political machine. And so it was thought by a lot of people that one of the reasons that Fisk was fighting so hard to get an injunction against the letters being published or to get the letters back so he would have them in his possession was to keep criminal dealings with 
boss Tweed from coming out in public. And it was thought that Tweed himself had an interest in all of this. So there's more to go on in this story than it would than there would have been if this case didn't go to court. Which so and and there's something else for the person, for the writer of the history. Um, I reflect when I was writing the book, I reflected on the fact that, you know, there are all sorts of police procedurals, murder stories that either start out or wind up in court. And courtrooms make great settings for dramas. Now, why is this? Because you have protagonists and antagonists facing each other in a high stakes setting. Typically, somebody's going to get convicted or acquitted. And if they get convicted, they might get executed. So somebody's life typically has already been lost. Another life is in jeopardy. And you have your characters speaking back and forth directly to each other. Novelists can do this all the time. If you pick up a novel, one of the ways you know you're reading a novel before you even sort of read any words, you've just fanned through the pages, is you see lots of dialogue. People talk to each other in real life and in novels. In most history books, people don't talk to each other because, and when I say history books, history books that are written based on primary documents, you know, where somebody wrote down, this is what they said. It's rare. The kind of documents we work from are letters where one person, it's the equivalent of a monologue that goes on for the length of the letter. And then maybe you get another monologue when the person writes back. But rarely do you get one person speaking one sentence and the other person saying, wait, no, that's not true. And then you get an argument. And so I found in writing this that the, the courtroom scenes are in some ways the easiest to write because they're the most naturally gripping. So that's really where I, I can bring Josie into the story. But I will say, even now, after, you know, years after having written the book and I still sort of have interest in Josie, that there are big parts of her life we know very little about. So we kind of assume on the basis of things that she said, things that were said about her, that she essentially ran away from home because she was being abused by her stepfather. I mean, was that really true? Was that something that she made up later to explain why she got married at the age of 16 and ran off? I mean, it's quite possibly true, but I, I can't nail it down. And it's in, it's in the nature of these kinds of interpersonal relations that you really never can nail that stuff down anyway. I mean, even in the 21st century, it's, it very often is a he said, he said, she said kind of thing. But so, and even just sort of tracing jo- Josie's life before she meets Fisk, okay, that's, I, t- I tried to reconstruct it, but I don't go too far into it because I don't have a lot to go on. And then what happens after Fisk gets murdered? And Ned Stokes, Ed Stokes gets prosecuted for this and he eventually goes to prison. You know, what happens to her? Well, she disappears because she's at the center of this and she doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And so she gets out of town. And it took me a while to figure out, well, where did she go? Um, What did she do? Even now, it's not entirely clear. She lived almost 60 years after the shooting, the killing of Jim Fish. She apparently, and this is the best account, that she lived until the 1930s. She died in Paris. But what was she doing all that time? There were some reports that she was in a convent. She apparently got married again. Uh, but she's. this is an example of something that I, I have encountered again and again. And that is, and it, it's come down to a sort of a, a, ba- a rule of thumb that I have devised for writing about 
people in the past. And the rule of thumb is this. You can write about extraordinary people in ordinary times. And by extraordinary people, I mean people who became or would, would become famous. Uh, people who be Abraham Lincoln, Benjamin Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt. Because extraordinary, these extraordinary people, they stand out. That's what extraordinary means. And people who receive letters from them save the letters. And people who have occasion to meet them hurry home and write down in their diaries, I met Abraham Lincoln today and he told this horrible joke. And so extraordinary people, you can write, you can write a full biography of Abraham Lincoln or of Franklin Roosevelt or Benjamin. With Benjamin Franklin, it's a little bit harder. We can't write much about his first 16 or 17 years because he was a nobody then and he was the only, only witness to, to what happened. So, but you can write about extraordinary people in ordinary times. You can write about ordinary people in extraordinary times. I wrote a book about the California gold rush and the principal characters in my book about the California gold rush were thoroughly ordinary people who got swept up in this extraordinary experience of going to California looking for gold. And the reason I, as the historian, could write about these ordinary people in extraordinary times was that when they headed off to California, they all started writing letters home. When they were living at home, they didn't write letters to their wives. They talked to their wives over dinner. And they didn't keep diaries because, well, diaries, most people don't keep diaries. They didn't keep journals. Journals, by the way, the word journal comes from the same root as journey. People would keep journals of their journeys because they knew this was something they wanted to remember. So these ordinary people, they're invisible to history until they head off to California. Then they write these journals, write these letters. And by the way, when the letters get to home, and this applies also to big events like the Civil War, there are zillions of letters written home from soldiers at the front in the Civil War. And of course, families save the letters. This is the biggest thing to happen in the lives of the soldier and in the lives of the family. And they know this is the big deal. We'll save them and we'll, we'll keep them. And eventually they find their way into historical societies and libraries. But before they go off to war or before they went off to the California gold rush, it's impossible to find out what they were doing because it's understood. They don't, they don't leave a written trace. After the Civil War, after they come home from California, they are impossible to write about. So ordinary people in extraordinary times, yeah. The hardest people to write about are ordinary people in ordinary times. And so for Josie, that's most of the thing, but she does have her moment in the sun. Uh, and so that's, that's the part of the story that I focus on. We will be right back. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw 
Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police like <laughs> she should have, exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then from beneath the Hollywood sign is the gin joint for you. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, some of the things that came out about her in the trial, if, if true, she had a really rough life. Yeah, uh, yeah. There was a suggestion that her, her stepfather prostituted her out. So, yeah, if, if that did indeed happen, she came from a pretty tough situation. Yeah, so, so there again, there's... That, that certainly meshes with her history afterwards, but there's no independent account of that. So, okay, if that's what she says, well, I'll, there, I have no reason to doubt her word for it, but, but that's where the historian has to sort of acknowledge that this seems to have happened. Yes, yes, for sure. So I do want to ask you about how she and Jim Fisk met. But before I do that, would, would you talk more about Fisk, his partnership with Jay Gould, and another man named Daniel Drew, and their battle for the control of the Erie Railway? Yeah. And this nemesis of theirs, Cornelius Vanderbilt, because these, these events sort of, of loom like a big cloud over all of the drama happening in this story. Now, some of your listeners might be old enough to remember some of the big takeover battles of the 1980s and 1990s, when mergers were going on and one company would try to buy out another company and, and do all this sort of thing. That practice in American business history really kicked into high gear in the decade after the Civil War. And instead of media firms, as was the case in the 1980s and 1990s, railroads. Railroads were the objects of the, the greed, the covetousness of the speculators. Railroads were by far the biggest businesses in America, by far the biggest businesses America had ever seen at a time when other businesses were considered big if they had 100, 200 employees, maybe a textile mill in Massachusetts. Railroads, they had tens of thousands of employees and their operations were across states across multiple states. So they were really a big deal. They were also the cutting edge technology 
And just as there is competition among new technologies, just as uh, Facebook Meta's threads is taking on Twitter, the Erie Railroad, the New York State's Erie Railroad took on the Pennsylvania Railroad. They were they were trying to seize market share to the extent that where there was there was speculative money that was pouring into these. There we wouldn't call it venture capitalists capitalism exactly, but that's what it was. There were people who had money to invest, especially after the Civil War, and the hot ticket items were railroad stocks. And so what you would do is you would pump up a railroad stock, and if you could take control of it, then you would gain a, a local monopoly on transport. Now, I mean, you have the local monopoly between the cities that the, the railroad serviced. Now, other railroads might try to build alongside you, but if you're the first one there, you had a big advantage because you already had built the infrastructure. But on opposite sides of the Hudson River, for example, railroads were built from New York City to Albany. And even if you had one, well, the other one would build thinking, okay, maybe we can cut into the share. The Erie Railroad connected New York City to Buffalo and basically connected New York's harbor to Lake Erie, making that railroad the key piece of the transport network from the Atlantic Ocean to Chicago, to the interior of America. And this was when Chicago was booming and all of the agricultural commodities, all of the mining resources of the Midwest would go through Chicago and they would then they would travel by Great Lakes steamer to Buffalo and then they would get on trains and they would go to New York and whoever could control that that railroad had an opportunity to make huge amounts of money but every time but of course where there was a possibility of profit there was a possibility of speculative gain and just as Apple Corporation today is worth $3 trillion. Well, partly that's due to the fact that people think that over the next 50 years, the profits of Apple will sustain that kind of valuation. But also, it's because people at the moment are feeling kind of bullish on tech stocks. You know, uh, six months ago, the price was much less than that. Well, the same thing happened in railroad stocks with the, with the additional element that the people who controlled the stocks were much freer to, well, these days, for example, Apple can keep up the share price of its stock by buying back the stock. So basically, you have fewer shares out there, and therefore, the, the value of the, of the company is divided by fewer number of shares of stock. Well, it can work in the, other way, in the other way as well. You can issue new shares of stock. And people who were engaged in speculation would engage... Meanwhile, in all sorts of shenanigans about issuing new stock, about claiming old stock was fraudulent, about packing the boards of directors. And this is what Jay Gould and Jim Fisk in the company of Daniel Drew, who was an older man, he was a speculator from an earlier period, they decided to gang up on Cornelius Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt was America's first railroad tycoon. He had been in sailing ships and then steamships. Then he got into railroads. So they, they decided that they were going to wrest control of the Erie away from Cornelius Vanderbilt. After the railroads went public, no individual controlled the whole thing. So it was a matter of how many shares of stock do you have? And so they waged war, uh, a stock war against Cornelius Vanderbilt, and they eventually won it out from under him. Well, he vowed that he would ruin them. So he had them in his crosshairs. They 
outraged so many people that they had to flee the headquarters of the Erie Railroad and go to New Jersey, where New York laws and New York policemen could not chase them. And they they basically hid out in New Jersey until things calmed down, basically until they could sort of buy their way out from under the scandal that they had created. Right. Yes. It, it's quite an interesting escape that they that they make. Daniel Drew makes it across by ferry. The, the three of them were originally going to escape together, but then Gould and Fisk decided to go back to a restaurant for a luncheon so they could say goodbye to some, some friends. <laughs> and then the police came for them, and then they had to sneak out of the back of the restaurant. I think it was Delmonico's. And then they had to, to take a rowboat in the dead of night. Yeah. Uh, and, and finally, they, they arrive um, all, all bedraggled looking. You know, in movies these days, there, there'd be a car chase. And those days, it's a rowboat chase. And there are bags, uh, right, loaded with cash <laughs> that they're carrying out of the city. Lo- loaded with cash and shares of stock of the Erie Railroad. I mean, they basically took the archives of the railroad with them. And they know that if they can get halfway across the Hudson, that's where the, the state boundary is, then they're safe. And they assume that the New Jersey authorities, at least for the moment, are going to be more amenable to their plight than the New York authorities. But they also have in mind, they're going to go back to New York, not via the way they had come, but via Albany, because they assumed that they could go to New York and get state legislators to either enjoin the New York authorities from coming after them, or basically if they greased enough palms, they could make it right. And the way they would grease palms is they would often just hand out shares of the railroad. So, and this is the kind of stuff where it wasn't illegal in those days for members of a state legislature to trade in, to speculate in shares of stock that they were responsible for. What we today would call insider trading. That was simply expected. Of course, you're going to try to trade on inside information. Eventually, not least as a result of this kind of scandal, authorities realize, wait, we, we can't let this continue to happen. Otherwise, nobody will have any faith in the stock market. So eventually, call them the pillars of the community or the ones who have the long-term interests in the operation of Wall Street. They step in and they change the rules. But of course, at by that point, then the heirs of Fisk and Gould, they would have new avenues for scandal. And, and Daniel Drew, by the way, has a change of heart and he sneaks back to New York City to secretly meet with Vanderbilt because he wants out. Right. And and one of the great things about it is Daniel Drew was one. There were others, John D. Rockefeller, who was a ruthless competitor in the oil business. They were often very devout religiously, and they apparently did not see any contradiction between what they did in the office Monday through Friday and then what they did on Sunday when they went to church. So in the case of Daniel Drew and Rockefeller did the same thing. He would give money to poor people, give money to charity. And, and it's probably the case that Drew, Drew might have concluded that this new wave of speculators, these young Turks, they're, they're pushing it beyond anything I was going to do. So I, he didn't want to spend his last years in prison. Right, right. 
So eventually a, a deal is made where Drew gets out completely, and Fisk and Gould end up taking control of the railroad. Right. Well, so I guess what I should say is the way these stories almost always ended, it's never a complete defeat for anybody nor a total victory for anybody else. What they're always trying to do is put themselves in a position, in a strong negotiating position. So ultimately, they bought off Cornelius Vanderbilt. And when I say bought them off, they gave him enough so that he would not then continue the war. He wouldn't try to ruin them because this stuff could go on forever. And they had other things that they wanted to do. In, in the case of Gould, his the big fish that he was aiming for was to corner the American gold market. And that was the one that was, that was going to be, first of all, his big payday, if it worked out, but also his contribution to the annals of speculation. Yeah. Would you mind talking just a bit about that? Fisk is enlisted by Gould, right? To, to make an appearance at the gold market. Sure. Okay. First of all, I'll talk about the personalities. Jay Gould was quiet. He rarely spoke loudly. He didn't like being seen in public. He was smart, but he liked to hatch his plots on his own. And he ordinarily didn't work with partners, but sometimes he realized he either needed partners or he had to bring people in who otherwise might spoil the plan. So Gould is the brains behind the scene. Fisk gets wind of what Jay Gould is doing. Now, Jay Gould didn't initially tell Jim Fisk what he was going to do because he realized that Fisk could not keep his mouth shut. Fisk was a public guy. Fisk loved to boast. Fisk loved to buy the latest clothes. He was sometimes called Diamond Jim because he had diamonds on his sleeves and diamonds in his the buttonholes and diamonds on his fingers. He he curled his hair. He wore pomade. He was quite a dandy. And he just loved being the center of attention. Now, Gould, concluding that, may, that, he, that Fisk knew too much and therefore he couldn't be kept out, decided that it was better to bring Fisk in and have him on the inside rather than have him on the outside, you know, kind of bang on the door trying to get in and spoiling everything that way. Also, Gould realized that there was going to have to be kind of a public face of this effort. Now, what was the effort? The effort was to corner the gold market. That was the terminology that was used. In those days, the United States operated on a dual currency system. There was gold. And from the 1790s, gold had been the basis of America's currency system. Silver was added. And here we're talking about actual gold and actual silver, except that People didn't walk around with gold nuggets in their pockets. They walked around with bank notes that were backed by gold. And the note would say, take this note to the local branch of the U.S. Treasury and you can redeem it for gold. Paper's a lot more convenient for day-to-day -day usage, but the fact that you can convert it to gold at your pleasure gives people confidence in it. The reason for this is that while you can print paper money that's not backed by something. You just run the printing press an extra shift every day. You can't make any more gold. God makes gold. And so there's this limit on how much money there can be. And in, mon in monetary policy, as in anything else, uh, the larger the supply is, the lower the price, the lower the value. So something has to keep the quantity of gold from expanding out of control. 
except that during the Civil War, the, the Union government needed more cash because it was spending like there was no tomorrow. And if it lost the Civil War, there would be no tomorrow. And so for the first time, the U.S. Treasury started printing paper money. And this is money that's not backed by gold. It was called legal tender. And in fact, if you pick up a dollar bill, a $5 bill, a $10, even today, the, they use the same phrasing as they did back in the 1860s when these were new. And it says, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. So there were these two currencies. The legal tender notes were called greenbacks because they were printed in green ink. So the greenbacks and gold operated as parallel currencies. And for many operations, greenbacks were fine. But the trouble is you never knew if the greenbacks was gonna, were going to keep their value. And on tracks from day to day, that was no big deal. If I sell you a pair of shoes and then the next day I take the money and go buy a loaf of bread, the changing value of the greenback really doesn't matter. But over time, it could matter a lot. And so there was always this question of how much, is the, how much are the gold dollars worth? How much are the, the greenback dollars worth? And the price would go up and down. Now, there were certain individuals who needed gold. And when I say gold here, I mean they need the promise of the gold, even though they don't actually carry the gold around in their pockets. They, what they need is the gold dollars. And they needed gold dollars primarily for overseas transactions. If somebody in Britain sold you something, they didn't want greenbacks because they didn't trust greenbacks. They were willing to accept gold in exchange because Gold is worth something in every country. Every country values gold. Not every country values something that just has the legal tender mark of the U.S. Treasury. So for international trade, gold was necessary. Interestingly, the federal government also demanded gold dollars in payment for federal taxes, typically taxes on imports. So uh, tariffs and excise taxes. So people, certain people needed gold. And when you need something, if it is in short supply, you have to bid up the price to get more of it. And so there was a currency market. It was a currency market, it's simply often called the gold market. It was in, there was a room in Wall Street called the gold room where people would say, I need $10,000 in gold dollars. Okay. Now you might think how much does $10,000 in gold dollars cost? Well, $10,000, right? No, because the payment was in greenbacks and typically you had to pay more in greenbacks to get $10,000 gold. So you might pay uh, $12,000 in greenbacks to get $10,000 in gold dollars. But if you needed the gold dollars, you're going to pay for it. So what Gould realized is that at any given time, there was a limited, there were a limited number of gold dollars available. And if people needed them, then they would pay a lot for them. Because if you if you, if you need money for that transaction, international transaction, or if you need money to pay your taxes, then you'll bid up the price. And if the price goes from you know, $1.20 in the, the instance that I just hypothesized, if it goes up to $1.30, you'll pay that. It might go up to $1.40. It might go up to $1.50. And so the relative price of these two currencies was volatile. And what Gould intended to do was secretly purchase enough gold dollars, or more precisely, purchase futures of enough gold dollars so that he could then announce to the world, hey, if you want gold, you got to come buy it from me, Jay Gould, because I've got all the gold. 
And there was there was actually just a limited amount of gold that he had to corner. It was something like, I can't remember what it was, three and a half or four million dollars worth of gold. And which, you know, seems like hardly anything today, but in those days it was it was enough. But he he hatched this scheme where he would enlist dozens of brokers who would buy the gold, buy these futures of gold, that, so that he would control. Now, they didn't know what the other ones were doing. So they just thought, okay, we've got, you know, we're buying this small amount of gold. And, but altogether, it added up to a lot. And so this, this was the plan. Once he got control of this, then he would be able to dictate the price that everybody else has to pay because they all had contracts they had to meet and they would either, they would have to default on their contracts or they would pay Gould what he demanded for the price of gold. And this is known as the corner of a, a corner of a market. So you sort of drive the market into a corner and other things had been cornered. There were corners on oil. There were corners on pork bellies. There were corners on this, that, and the other thing. And they usually, you know, happened for a while and things resolved themselves and they went away, but nobody had ever tried to corner American money, corner gold. This was the biggest deal ever. So this was what they attempted to do. And this is what Jay Fisk basically kind of elbowed his way in on. When Fisk heard that Gould was doing this, Gould realized that Fisk could blow the lid on this and destroy the whole scheme. So he basically allowed Fisk to come in and be a partner in this attempt to corner the gold market. Right. But the federal government gets gets word, right? And President Grant puts a halt to all of it. Yes. Yeah. So Ulysses Grant is the president and he's generally a believer in free markets. So let the markets sort things out. But when he realizes the free market is, is being undermined by this would-be monopolist, Jay Gould, he, he sort of paces the floor at the White House at night. What should I do? Should I intervene? Because the federal government had more gold and the federal government could flood the market and destroy any effort to corner the gold market. And Grant really thinks long and hard about this. He doesn't realize that his brother-in-law has been bribed by Jay Gould not to change Grant's mind, but basically to send a warning signal to Gould if Grant decides to intervene. Because all along, Gould realized this is a risky operation. And if I get caught out before it's successful, I could lose lots of money. On the other hand, if I know that it's not going to succeed, then I can silently start selling all my gold while the price is still high before the word gets out that the government has intervened. And so, in fact, that, that's what happened. Gould and Fisk, through Gould, they were notified by Grant's brother-in-law that Grant was going to intervene. And so they get this notice just minutes ahead of time that this is going to happen. And so silently, they start selling and they manage to get out from under this collapsing price of, of gold. Now, lots of other people who had seen the price of gold going up and up and up, they thought, hey, the price of gold is going up. Let's get on this escalator and ride it to the top too. They're the ones who got caught out. So the, the attempted corner collapsed. Jay Gould and Jim Fisk were revealed to be the ones behind it. They had to flee quite possibly for their lives because there were dozens, scores, hundreds of speculators who were ruined. They were bankrupt that day and they knew they, they had Gould and Fisk to blame for this. So they chased them down the street, 
Gould and Fisk barricade themselves behind the doors of the headquarters of the Erie Railroad, which was, they, they control it now, which happened to be at the, the Grand Opera House. They decided this was a great place for a corporate headquarters. So they barricade themselves behind the doors until things calm down a little bit. Back after a few brief messages. From Fort Sumter to the Battle of Gettysburg. From the Emancipation Proclamation to Appomattox Courthouse. From the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Compromise of 1877. From Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. To Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. And we're the hosts of a podcast that takes a deep dive into that era when a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned for the final time. Yeah, it's interesting. You you write that as as partners, Gould was happy to let Fisk have his opera house, where Fisk enjoyed entertaining, mingling with celebrities and dignitaries, and uh, fancied himself an empresario. But but Gould w- was happy to have him out of the way so he could run their actual business. But but let's go back to Fisk and Josie Mansfield again. How did they meet? What exactly was the nature of their relationship, as you understand it? Not to put it too finely, Josie, by the time she was about 18 or 19, became, I'll call her a woman on the make. And she had 
lived in San Francisco. She got married in San Francisco. She came back east. She went back to San Francisco. She came back east again. She was in Philadelphia. And somebody suggested that she go to New York because New York was where people went to make their fortunes. And just as Jim Fisk had been attracted to New York by the possibility of making a fortune from speculation, from the markets in shares and railroads and gold and various other things, Josie went to New York. Well, she said she wanted to be an actress. And of course, actresses went to New York. But actress was a, a term that covered sort of all sorts of female activities from being just an out and out prostitute to being a kept woman to being actually an actress. And Josie was uh, an attractive woman. It's interesting because I include some photographs of Josie in the book. And she uh, she's kind of a reminder that tastes change over time. But she apparently drove men crazy and almost literally crazy. In fact, Ned Stokes would claim that he had been driven crazy by Josie. But anyway, so she goes to New York and she arranges to, she goes to a party where some rich guys will be. And apparently she batted her eyelashes. She kind of sized up Jim Fisk. And I'm not sure how much she knew about him before she sauntered over and introduced herself, but they hit it off. He was, as I mentioned earlier, he had an eye for female beauty and she had an eye for a guy who was on the make and who maybe could keep her in the style to which she wanted to be kept. She had been married before. She had been divorced. She didn't want to marry again. Marriage hadn't worked out for her, and she had bad memories of her mother's marriages. And so she was quite happy to be someone who was assisted along. Now, she would be the girlfriend. She would be the, the mistress of Jim Fisk. And on the way, she would probably learn something about business from Jim Fisk. He would perhaps make investments in her name, as he did, and she would pocket the profits. So she would learn something about business. She probably didn't intend to be Jim Fisk's girlfriend forever, but she would. this was her way to get ahead. She was in her early 20s, and this was how she would support herself. She didn't have any education to speak of. She didn't have any particular skills, but she was attractive and men seemed to respond to her in a positive way. So she ingratiated herself to Jim Fisk, who was quite happy. And, and Fisk was somebody, he was not a dashing figure. He didn't exactly have his pick of all the women in New York, aside from the fact that he was married. And so there was that issue. But Josie seemed to be willing to have a relationship on terms that suited Jim Fisk. So it, it suited them. It suited the two of them well. He did keep her in lavish style. He bought her a house, a brownstone that was just across the street or down the street from the, the opera house where the Erie headquarters were. He would entertain her at his place. She would entertain him at her place. They didn't go out in public together much, but people sort of knew who she was. And it was, it was in an age where in certain circles, discretion was expected and discretion was allowed. So as long as he didn't flaunt Josie too scandalously, then 
nobody would say much. His wife knew that Jim Fisk had a girlfriend, but she had a paramour of her own. And they, they seemed to be fond of each other, but they didn't particularly want to live in the same place. So Fisk had kind of moved on from his marriage and his wife had sort of moved on from the previous relationship. So it uh, suited Josie pretty well until, until, well, she had gotten what she wanted out of Fisk. She had a comfortable living situation. She had saved up some money. And then she decided, well, maybe, maybe I want somebody who is more dashing, somebody who's better looking than Jim Fisk. And that's where Edward Ned Stokes comes into the picture. Right, right. You write that Stokes was the son of a a once well-to-do New York family that had fallen on hard times. And his job was, was as a supervisor of the family-owned Brooklyn oil refinery that the Erie Railroad took an interest in. And that's how he connected with Fisk. And Fisk kind of takes Stokes under his wing and, and bizarrely, right, introduces him to Josie. Ah, this is one of those moments. I remember when I encountered this and was writing about it. And it, I I. I feel this every so often when I'm writing about history where I, because I'm coming along after the fact that I know how things turned out. I said to myself, Jim Fisk, what were you thinking in introducing Ned Stokes to Josie? <laughs> Perhaps Fisk was overly confident. I mean, he definitely was overly confident as it turned out in Josie's loyalty to him. Maybe he simply thought, well, okay, Jay Gould and Daniel Drew, they showed me how to speculate. And and I'll, I'll do the same. I'll pass it on to Ned Stokes. And who knows exactly? Maybe he was kind of showing that he wasn't the jealous type. It turns out he should have been. But anyway, so yeah. So in fact, the relationship between Fisk and Stokes is a business relationship before it becomes sort of the third side of this love triangle with Josie at the other vertex. So as Josie and Stokes grow more intimate, she decides she wants to separate from Fisk and be with Stokes. Stokes is not so sure and and reminds her that they both benefit from Fisk's money. And then Josie remembers, recalls that Fisk had invested money in her name to the tune of about $25,000. And they decide that if she can get that, it will be enough for them to live on without Fisk. So they just start by asking Fisk for Josie's money, for for the money Josie has been told that she has, and he refuses to give it to her. Yeah, so originally they thought that Fisk was vulnerable to the concept of scandal, that if they tell what they know about Fisk's relationship with Josie, then Fisk is going to be embarrassed, and so he will take action to prevent that. Now, in fact, Jim Fisk was kind of beyond embarrassment, in part because he realized that the people whose opinion he cared about already knew about this. So there was that part of it. The other thing was he simply resented that this woman that he, the way he saw it, this woman that he had taken almost sort of out of the gutter and set her up and given her nice things and made her money and taught her about the stock market and all sorts of other things, had betrayed him 
had betrayed his trust, had betrayed his, I mean, did he love her? I mean, I'm sure he did after his own fashion. And now she had turned his back on him for, well, this other guy, this guy, Ned Stokes, whom he also had done good things by. And so Fisk was not of any mind to say, oh, sure, I'll give you what you want. On the contrary, he was getting rather angry about this. And he said, no, you're not getting that at all. Right. So things really escalate. Uh, Josie tries blackmailing Fisk, as you said, threatens to tell the the press about intimate things, including her, her knowledge of some of the tricks he pulled in relation to the Erie Railroad. And then Fisk gets a witness, a, a servant named King, to come forward to, to state that he heard Stokes and Josie conspiring to blackmail Fisk for money. And then things come to a head when Fisk and Josie meet in a courtroom in 1871. And as all of this is going on, Fisk has pulled some strings and gotten a grand jury to investigate Stokes. So a lot is happening, and there's a lot of animosity between the two parties. Yeah. So one of the things that makes this story kind of work and makes the the strategies that the different sides use plausible is that judges in that day and age were known to be bribable. And Fisk had bribed judges, and it's still the practice that prosecutors, they shop for particular courts, particular venues, particular judges, because this judge is more amenable to the prosecution, this one to the defense, and so on. In those days, it was really more a matter of who's been taking your money. And so Fisk would sue Josie and Stokes in one court. They would countersue in another court. Meanwhile, Fisk would plant spies in the camp of Josie and Stokes, and they would bribe witnesses. And so there is absolutely no telling where the truth in all of this lies. And because these people, if if you can bribe a judge, you can certainly commit perjury, if only because you think the judge will let you off you know, if, <laughs> if you've been paying him enough. So it's, as the writer of the history, I, I don't presume to say, oh, well, when she said this, she was telling the truth. But when she, when she said this, she was lying. I, I lay it out there the way it was laid out for the juries to, cause they have to try to adjudicate and you know, there it is. And, but the upshot of it was that Ned Stokes and Josie Mansfield initially thought they had the edge over Fisk because they had the letters and they thought that Fisk would do almost anything to keep the letters from being published because maybe the letters incriminated him. Maybe the letters incriminated boss Tweed, as I've mentioned earlier, maybe the letters incriminated Jay Gould, who knew because they didn't say exactly what was in the letters. And apparently Fisk didn't keep copies of all the letters. So he didn't know what was in there, but it turned out that he was more clever in using the court system than they were. Now, he sort of did this all the time. This wasn't his first rodeo and it wasn't his first set of lawsuits. And so eventually he got Stokes indicted for various alleged shenanigans. And that's when when Stokes kind of finally lost it because he thought that he and Josie were going to get the money and kind of ride away into the sunset. But now it's like, oh my gosh, there's going to be judgment against me or I might go to prison. 
So this is when he finally decides, okay, I got to got to end this. So Stokes is at the end of his rope and he has just heard that the grand jury investigation has not gone his way. So he's really upset about that. This is on January 6th, uh, 1872, by the way. So Stokes goes to the Grand Central Hotel to confront Fisk directly. Can you tell us exactly what happened? Yeah. So Fisk, who knows exactly why he was going to the hotel. He perhaps had another woman he was meeting there. But Stokes got wind that Fisk was going to be at the hotel. And this wasn't unusual. It was a kind of a a central meeting spot. And he got wind that Fisk was going to be there. So he hurries there to get ahead of him. And he comes armed. He also knew that Fisk, trying to avoid publicity, didn't go in the front entrance. He went in the side entrance. And so Fisk was waiting for him on the stairwell, which was not very heavily traveled. And Fisk comes up the stairs and Gould shoots him. And Fisk suffers these wounds that prove fatal within 24 hours. So he dies the next day. And we've got a dead man, we've got a body, we've got a shooter. And Fisk excuse, um, and Stokes didn't deny shooting, but he did claim when the case came to trial that he fired in self-defense. So Stokes's explanation for this shifted over time, but he said he saw Fisk pull a pistol, and so he was in fear of his life. Stokes told the story he came simply to confront Fisk. And to say, stop, you shouldn't do this. When, according to Stokes, Fisk pulled the gun and Stokes had a gun to defend himself and he shot him and that's what happened. Well, the case went to trial and in the first trial, there was a hung jury where they they couldn't decide. Now, nobody knows whether, if any, how many of the jurors were bribed. So was it an honest mistrial? Did they... I mean, when I say mistrial, they, they, it was a hung jury. They couldn't agree that Fisk was guilty or that he was not guilty. So some allowed themselves to be persuaded that, that uh, Stokes had done this in self-defense. Others were willing to say, no, no, this was a case of murder. So they go to a second trial. In the second trial, he's convicted. He's convicted of first-degree murder, but his defense attorneys appeal. And it's overturned on appeal. So then they have a third trial, and all these trials produce transcripts and testimony and all sorts of other stuff. It goes on forever and ever. And on the third trial, he's convicted of manslaughter. So they don't get him for murder. They're more persuaded by the the idea that maybe it was self-defense, or at least, or maybe it was in a fit of passion, that he didn't go there intending to murder Fisk but he was just going to confront him. But then words were exchanged and tempers flared and anyway, shot him and he died. So he goes to prison and he goes to prison, but then in prison, he develops or says he develops these health problems. They're going to cause him to die in Sing Sing unless he is allowed out. And so his sentence is commuted and he, he's set free. And then he goes on and he, he lives for a while after that. It seems on the surface that it, it should have been easy for, for prosecutors, but the defense 
through a ton of stuff at the jury. <laughs> it, it was not premeditated first, they stated, and as you've said, it was a spur-of-the-moment action based on overwhelming stress caused by the grand jury indictment news. Then they made the argument that Fisk was a bad, bad man. Among other questionable actions, uh, Fisk had ordered the beating of a civic reformer. He has ties to Tammany Hall. Fisk was making Stokes' life a living hell. He pretty much pushed Stokes to kill him. And as you said, Stokes' attorney claimed Fisk had a pistol on him and drew first. And then there was another question, right? Stokes' attorneys tried to plant the seed that it wasn't actually Stokes's bullet that killed Fisk. It was the treatment he received afterwards that, that killed him by, by doctors, by attending doctors. He would have lived if he hadn't been given opium. Yeah. So this is one now. In fact, there would be a much more celebrated case of this less than a decade later when James Garfield was assassinated and Garfield was shot and he lingered for many weeks, but he died as a result of the doctors fumbling and they thought that they ought to get the bullets out and they probed through these wounds without, with unwashed hands, washing your hands, you know, sanitary surgery was not a thing in those days. And so in that case, it was pretty clear that the doctors killed him. Now that's a few years later, but, but the idea existed because there were people who realized, oh, sometimes what happens is infection sets in and people die. And so to shift the blame, neither, as you suggest, the defense is doing anything they can to shift the blame away from Stokes. The fact that Jim Fisk was not a very sympathetic victim helped. It's not impossible as well that money exchanged hands in all of this. It's quite likely, in fact, this is quite probable, that the prosecution decided, we've tried twice to get a murder conviction. We couldn't make it stick, so we'll settle for manslaughter. And at least we'll, at least this guy will go to prison, and we can say that justice has been served. By this time, Fisk is kind of a memory that everybody wants to forget about. And so the case on the third go around, the, the trials are not as thoroughly covered as certainly in the first one and then the second one. And then the kind of the last thing, and this falls in the category of that Stokes was under stress and he was out of his mind. There was, this gets back to, you know, what I, the, the reason I chose the title I did for my book, the murder of Jim Fisk for the love of Josie Mansfield. Here's this woman who has basically beguiled first Jim Fisk and then Ned Stokes and driven Ned Stokes to this sort of murderous rage against his rival in love for the affections of Josie Mansfield. And there was certain element of New York, perhaps including members of the jury, that you know, this, guy, this is a crime of passion. And so, no, it's, it doesn't have to be murder. Yes, a man died, so we'll, we'll go with manslaughter. Yeah. Uh, uh, Fisk doesn't die right away. He names Stokes as his killer. And also, Mrs. Fisk shows up. <laughs> and they get some time together uh, and apparently get some sort of resolution regarding their marital troubles. 
And then Fisk, on his deathbed, leaves his money to his wife. And to your knowledge, Josie doesn't get anything, right? As far as I know, no. And Josie made herself as scarce as she could very quickly. So reporters would go knocking on her door and she would refuse to answer. If they managed to trick her into opening, she would say as little as possible. She got out of town as quickly as she could. She wanted no more of the limelight. And so she essentially disappeared over the course of, as I mentioned earlier, she lived all, she lived into the 1930s. So th- this all happened when she was before she was 25 years old. So you know, she certainly could live another long while. Um, and she did. And she, uh, she continued to sort of make her way in the world as best she could. So what do you think about this idea that Stokes fired in self-defense after Fisk pulled a gun? Did they find Fisk's gun? Do you, do you think that happened? Or do you believe Stokes ambushed him at that staircase? There was no previous record of Jim Fisk carrying a weapon, and he just wasn't the type of person to do that. He would rely on his wit, on his ability to run fast if necessary. But no, he I'm not at all persuaded that he pulled a gun on Ned Stokes. The gun was not found, and um, the fact that it took place in this isolated stairwell meant that there were no eyewitnesses. But it's to me, the most probable explanation is that, that Stokes was outraged, was frustrated by the fact that Fisk had turned the legal tables on him and that instead of Stokes coming away with money from Fisk, Stokes might end up having to pay Fisk or might himself go to prison if this new indictment proved out. And he was just frustrated and angry. Now, maybe he went to the hotel simply wanting to vent, to yell at Fisk. But he did go armed. So there was always the possibility that he would do more. He didn't have, he himself didn't have a record of lethal violence by firearm. But still, I think that he, to a certain degree, uh, kind of lost his head first to Josie. And then as it extrapolated to the to the point where he was willing to kill Jim Fisk. Yeah, if Stokes had been defending himself and had felt justified in the shooting, uh, why did he run, right? Precisely, precisely. And and the pistol would have been there. You know, Fisk is lethally wounded and Stokes would as you say stand there waiting for the police and there would be the gun on the floor right next to Fisk. And it would be pretty clear, but it wasn't at all. He, he, he didn't make it far, though. He, he, he was tackled by hotel employees. <laughs> right, right. Well, well, this has been so great, and I know we're over time. So your books are available pretty much wherever books are sold, uh, bookstores, online. Uh, I know you have a Twitter handle uh, people can follow you at. And I also know that when someone has written so prolifically, like you have, it's got to be difficult to go back to a book that you wrote quite a while ago. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Again, I have been speaking to H.W. Brands. 
His book is called The Murder of Jim Fisk for the Love of Josie Mansfield. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.